Well, ladies and gentlemen, fantastic to be with you today. My name is Pastor Michael, and as Alex said, I planted New Life Brisbane here about three years ago, and the community here were like, we kind of wanted to upgrade. And so uh, we went with uh, Pastor Alex. How great is your pastor and the team here? That was a great time to be together. Friends, I'm excited to be with you today because we're in the second week of our Genesis series. Week, part, week two, Pastor Alex started off last week, and um, there's something that God is doing in and amongst the life of our church. A year ago, we thought, hey, why don't we do something different and preach through the book of Genesis for three years in the lead up to Easter? And this is part two as we look at the story of Abraham. To kick off today, um, I've got to be honest, coming back to, to Brisbane and in this moment, I get a little bit nervous because Alex knows about how to say most of the words of the dictionary. I have like five words in my lexicon. So I'm just in that moment. Let me just ask God to be with us today real fast. Father, we just ask that in this moment you would come, you would steal our hearts, diminish distraction. And in all things, Father, may we forget my name and my voice, less of me and more of you. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Wow, 4 p.m. All God's people said? Amen. God, that's so great. It's like Alex is leaning in on the front row. I want to ask you a question and have a picture on the screen behind me. When was the last time you took a leap of faith? When was the last time you took a leap of faith? If you look at this picture, this is Luke Aikens. Luke Aikens, last time he took a leap of faith was back in 2016 when Luke decided that he was going to jump from a plane 25,000 feet in the air without a parachute. Without, now you might, oh yeah, sure, someone else is probably going to jump behind him, do a James Bond, pass off of a parachute 10,000 feet above the ground. No, Luke's idea was to jump from a plane 25,000 feet in the air without a parachute. I don't know if you can see, but down the bottom on the ground there was a net. And his idea was, what if I fell 25,000 feet the whole way and landed in the net without assistance? Now if I was to ask you, how would you describe Luke's faith? What would you say? Stupid. Crazy. I was a cooling out of this morning, and Scott's like, strong. And I'm like, all right, Scott, what a flex with your manicured beard. That's fine. But like, there's this sense where I'm like, foolhardy. It, it doesn't make sense to us, but it made sense to Luke. Why? Because this was his 18,000th jump. This was his 18,000th jump. And you're like, yeah, but with parachutes, well, actually, the previous 12 jumps were with the parachute, but the parachute was deployed the last possible moment so he could aim at the net, and he knew what it meant for him to make his way down and steer and guide it into the net. They tested the net. They tested every part of this jump before it happened. See, we look at Luke in this moment. We go, you're an idiot. And he goes, no, no, no. I just know something you don't. I just know something you don't. In fact, when Luke talks about this experience, he says this, whenever people attempt to push the limits of what's considered humanly possible, they're invariably described as crazy. I'm here to show you that if we approach it the right way and we test it and we prove that it's good to go, we can do things that no one thought was possible. Why do I say this, friends? I say this quite simply because I think people look at Christians sometimes like we look at Luke. You're an idiot. What? You believe in a God you cannot see? You're crazy. And the question is, why are we not crazy, friends? Because we, just like Luke, know something that others don't know. We are not here today crossing our fingers, hoping that God is somewhere out there listening. No, there is a bunch of you in this room right now that beyond anything else are convicted, that there has been proof, that God has rocked up, shown up, and shown off that he can be trusted, he is faithful, and he is good. This is not an experiment we're hoping pulls off once we die, friends. There are people in this room who don't just have wishful thinking. They have faith. And I want to ask, do you have faith today? 
You might be sitting here going, I don't have faith. I'm not a person of faith. John Lennox, an Oxford the- a theologian and mathematician, a professor at Oxford would say this, everyone has faith because faith is not a Christian word. It comes from the Latin word fide, which means to rely or to trust something. And you all have reliance on something. A bunch of you are relying on me to preach short this afternoon and not put you to sleep. I hope your faith is well placed. Amen? I'll preach faster if you say amen. Amen? Wow, you really want me to go forever. Here's the next hour of your life in front of you. Here's the reason why I say this. And I started my week one off the similar way, even though we're in week two. I want you to answer this question for me. If you could actually describe your faith, what word would you put in the front of it? What word would you say? I said, how would you describe your faith? I have a blank faith. What word would you use? I have a vibrant faith. I have an apathetic faith. I have a dead faith, a bold faith, a courageous faith. Here at New Life, we have a value that we actually believe describes the kind of faith we want to personify, that we are in a church of an adventurous faith, that we are a church that believes faith should be an adventure. There's no such thing as boring Christians, just disobedient ones, friends. We are called to live a life of adventure. Some of you are like, what, did he just call me boring? Yes, I did. We'll pray for you at the end. There's this moment when we actually get to a moment where we go, well, what does it mean to have faith? What does faith look like? And the writer of Hebrews unpacks it for us. He actually talks about what it looks like to have faith by giving us characters in the Old Testament that lived out their faith. And one of these characters, which Pastor Alex welcomed us in to, is found in Hebrews 11, verse 8, which you more than likely heard last week. It'll be on the screen behind me where the writer of Hebrews describes Abraham like this. He says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. How do we know Abraham had faith? The writer tells us, how do you know Abraham has faith? This is a really helpful way to know how you have faith, how someone around you has faith. What is faith? How do we know Abraham had faith? Because he attended church? Because he listened to sermons and podcasts? Because he went to Sunday school as a kid? No, 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 what does the Bible tell us? No, no, none of these things are the indicator of Abraham's faith. How do we know Abraham had faith? Because he obeyed. See, friends, I want to posit today that faith, so often in our world, can be suggested to be like wishful thinking. Like we sit in a room and we're just like, hey, fingers crossed, I hope I got this right. Some of us think faith is passive cognitive belief in God. But the Bible tells us in the book of James that actually it is not enough to just believe in God, for even demons believe in God and they shudder. Why do they shudder? Because they believe he's far more powerful than you know. So belief in and of itself is not enough. Faith, friends, is simply this, active trust. I love how Pastor Alex said it last week. Faith is not this moment where where we have this absence of, of any doubt. It is not belief without proof. It is trust without reservation. It is embodied trust. I love that. And so we stumble. We don't stumble quite intentionally. We plan to. We walked into the story of Abraham last week. We're in Abraham chapter, Genesis chapter 12. We go back into the Old Testament. If you are the first time in church today, when I say Genesis, I'm talking about the first book of the Bible. And the book of Genesis, we read the story of Abraham. And in Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham and says, leave everything you know. Take your family. Come follow me to a land that you don't know. And we find out last week that what faith looks like for Abraham is to obey the call of God, to trust the promise of God, and to follow in the steps of God. And God says to Abraham, I will give you a great reward. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing to the nations so that you will have many children that will be a blessing to the nations. It's a beautiful promise. 
Then we go to Genesis 13, which we're not going to touch on today, where Abraham stumbles into failure. He loses faith in God and capitulates to Pharaoh. Then in Genesis chapter 14, he, he comes across this priest that blesses him and blesses his journey. He senses God is up to something in my story. But I want to take you to the next scene of Abraham's life, Genesis chapter 15 today. And in Genesis chapter 15, God speaks to Abraham again. And in this moment, the second moment that God has spoken to Abraham, God walks in and senses Abraham, who in this part of the story is known as Abram, is worried. He's afraid. Why? Because he's in the middle of the wilderness, and he doesn't know what happens next. We read in Genesis chapter 15, verse 1, the story, it'll be on the screen behind me in a moment. It says, coming off the back of Genesis chapter 14, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham, Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, says the Lord God, your very great reward. This is the first time in the Bible we hear the command, do not be afraid. But it is repeated from this moment on many times in the Old Testament. One of the most consistent things God says to humanity is do not be afraid. Why is Abraham afraid? Because he's left everything he knows. Why did he lead everything he knows? Because God said, I'm going to give you children. Now this might be like, oh, that's, that's lovely. Abram at the time of this promise is 75 years old. Now, I don't know if you did biology in year nine, but Abram did, and he knows how the reproductive system works. And not only has he lost the energy to make children at 75, I'm guessing, I'm still young, I don't quite know, but also he's running out of time. He's running out of time. And here he is in the middle of the wilderness, many years after the 75th, about 80 to 85 years old, and still there is not an heir. Abraham's wondering, what the heck is going on? Have you ever been in that moment? Have you ever been in a moment where you're like, God, what are you up to? Because here's why I say it. I actually think what God says here is really unhelpful. Hey, Abram, don't be afraid. I am your shield and your very great reward. I feel like Abram's probably like, I'm 85, God. I don't mind if you're my shield and my great reward. I want a kid. It's like that moment that maybe some of you are walking through in your life right now where finances are difficult, where maybe there's a health issue in your world. Maybe there's some kind of struggle or challenge you're walking through, and you come to church on Sunday and you share what's happening in your life with someone, and they just look you in the eye and be like, hey, you just need to have faith. God is your reward. And you're like, that's about as helpful as a punch in the face. <laughs> I, I genuinely think that that's the reaction that Abraham would have had. God, you, you've said this in the past, and still I have nothing to show for it. In fact, God, Abram comes back to God and goes, God, it's not just enough you're saying this to me. He questions God's promise. In, in Genesis chapter 15, verse 2, Abram comes back, and I love how even though he's questioning God, he's so, so respectful and filled with fear. He says, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of, das Eliezer of, das been a long day. Eliezer of Damascus? What's he saying here? God... It's lovely that you're my reward and you're my shield. Where is my kid? Where is the child that you promised me? Because, because here's the thing. I know that in my world, if my legacy, if my name's going to be continued, I need an heir. And if I don't, my legacy is passed to someone not in my family, a servant of my household named Eliza from Damascus. And he's saying, God, where is your promise? What are you doing? And here's why I love this story. Because of the permission it gives me in my relationship with God. There is never a moment in this story 
where Abram is rebuked by God for questioning the promise. Let me say that again. There's never a moment in the story when Abram is rebuked by God for asking him about his frustrations. Why is this important? Because sometimes I think we, we're too nice in our prayers as Christians. We, we come before God and we're like, God, you know, I, I, I trust you and I know you've got it, but deep in our heart, what we have is resentment. What we have is question. What we have is frustration. We think that faith and doubt are polar opposites. I don't think faith is not doubting God. I don't think faith means that we can't have questions of God or frustrations of God. I think faith is the moments when we understand the one we take our doubts to, the one we bring our frustrations before, the one we come boldly saying, God, I'm questioning everything right now. There is such permission in this story, friends, for me and maybe for some of us in the room today who know what it's like to wonder, God, where are you right now? It's lovely. Surely I know my testimony will be the empty grave as we sang earlier, but we walk home and we're like, but God, I still feel like something's not right. Maybe that's where you are today. And in this moment, I just say there's a welcoming from God into the narrative that he builds, saying, come and bring these doubts in front. Don't hide them. Because I think when we hide them, we build a weak faith, not a resilient one. How does God respond to Abram's questions? How does God respond to our frustrations? How does God respond to these questions and concerns that we have? Here's what happens next. Nothing. The next point of the story, in verse 3, it says, And Abram said, now, most commentators would believe that if you're writing, I mean, just in general English, if you're writing what someone has said, there is no need to interrupt what they've said to remind the person reading, and they're still talking. You can just continue the narrative, unless, unless something's changed. You see, most commentators would argue that, but Abram said, and the second, and Abram said, don't happen together. That there is a gap of time between verse 2 and verse 3, they're not the one conversation. They're actually two different moments in Abram's story, which tells us what? That there is a gap in the story between verse 2 and verse 3 where nothing seems to happen. There is silence. There is quiet. God doesn't respond. Do you know what it's like to ask of God and Him say nothing? Is that just my frustration? Has anyone else in the room felt that before? Thank you for the faithful people putting up their hands. Some people down the front row, I'm not sure. Or maybe it's introverts down the front, extroverts down the back. What we see in this story is this moment of silence in Abram's life. And sometimes I think, as Christians, we think silence means God has refused, God has abandoned, or God has left. But I believe in silence is in itself a response from God. That there is power and weight and, and importance in the waiting. See, I think God knows what he's doing in Abram is more than just responding to a question. He's building a resilience and a faith that cannot be shaken. Too often in our lives, we think silence is denial. But friends, I want to tell you today that silence with God is not often denial, but usually an invitation to trust. To trust a story we cannot see, to trust a story we cannot comprehend, and to trust a God who still holds the pen of the narrative that you're living. And here's the reason why I say this. 
is because I think what Abram's really afraid of is what we're all afraid of. I think Abram's afraid of not being in control, of not knowing what happens next. I'm an A-type leader. I don't know if any of you are A-type leaders. I don't actually really know what an A-type leader means. Someone just said it to me one day. And I'm like, what does it mean? And like, they, it means that you have to know how everything's going to play out. Oh, I'm, I'm like off the Richter scale A-type leader. I like strat plans, budgets. I like goals, knowing how things are going to get mapped out. I like Excel spreadsheets. Anyone else love Excel spreadsheets here? Yeah, because you can see all this information and you can work it out. That, that's me. So if someone's like, hey, I want you to leave everything you know and you're going to go to somewhere you don't know and I'm not going to tell you, I would be like, that stresses me the heck out. Why would you do this to me, God? I thought you loved me. And in this moment, I think what Abram's afraid of is not necessarily not having a kid. It's not being in control of when that kid comes. And, and control and faith are antithetical ideas. See, so many of us, we, we have passive faith and active control. We have passive trust in God an active control of our lives. And ultimately what we're saying is, hey God, I don't want to trust you with my life. I want you to trust me with my life. And that just isn't what it means to follow God. See, faith is about having passive control of our lives and active trust in God. Faith is surrender. Faith is going, hey God, I can't. And here's why control and faith are so antithetical. Because God looks at us and says, you controlling the story was how things got so messed up in the first place. I'm like, no, 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 I know that God, but I learned, I asked for forgiveness, and now I think I'm better. Let me control. He's like, no, 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 stop it. This is why I believe God is silent, because he's saying, hey, Abram, where is your trust really? Is it actually in me? Abram comes back to God and says, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. He's like, God, look at me. Have you forgotten what you promised? Friends, I'm sure many of you know that feeling this afternoon, what it feels like to be forgotten by God in a moment. But what Abram's story reminds us is what God's apparent absence doesn't mean God is not active. And in the next part of the verse, God steps in and he responds to Abraham. In verse 14, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Abram and said this, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. What does God say in this moment? He steps into Abram's story. And what he, does he not do? He doesn't tell him when he's going to have a kid. He doesn't tell him how he's going to have a child. But he says, Abram, listen to me. I have not forgotten you. You are not a dot point on a to-do list that fell off the desk of heaven and suddenly I'm like, oh, that's right, Abram. <laughs> I'm, I'm so bad at organizing my life. That is not how God works. God is saying just because it's not in your timing doesn't mean it's not in perfect timing. Just because it hasn't come when you needed it doesn't mean that it's not good. When you thought you needed it, it's not going to come when exactly you need it. God rocks in and he says, Abram, do not try and tell me how this story plays out. Forget about Eliezer. He isn't the option. He isn't, this isn't a multiple choice about how I will carry this out. I have a plan, I have a will. I am working with a far grander story than your mind can conceive. You will have a son and he will be your flesh and blood. And then he goes, let me show you something. Come outside with me. And it's nighttime. 
Because what he asks Abraham to do would be really easy in the daytime. He says, count the stars in the sky. Daytime, it's just like, unos, one, there we go, done. But he doesn't do that, does he? He goes, count the stars in the sky at night. And then this is like, I love this part. It's like God being sassy. It's like God flexing a little bit. He's like, Abram, count the stars if you can. Because I can. I know. What was that number, Abram? You got it wrong. <laughs> That's not the number. I know. This is what God's doing. What's he saying here? He said, Abram, come out here. Count the stars. Oh, you can't. I can. This is what I'm going to do. What I'm going to do is far bigger than what you can understand. What's he saying here? He's saying, Abram, you've lowered your gaze. The original promise was never about, hey, Abram, I'm going to give you one child. He says, Abram, I will make you the father of nations. And Abram's like, God, where's my kid? And Abram's like, God says to Abram, you have become so focused on your story, you've forgotten the story. You've become so focused on what you think I should do next, you have become unaware of what I am doing across all of time. Abram, take a step back and realize that one day I'm going to give you generations as many as the stars. You can almost picture Abram looking up and be like, me and Sarah are going to be so tired. It was a worked funny at Cool and Gather this morning. They were like, oh, did he really say that? And people are still catching up as to what that means. Anyway, moving on. There's this moment where what God's saying is actually what I'm about to do is going to last longer than your life. You will not father all the generations yourself, but your generations will give birth to generations that will give birth to generations that will give birth to generations. He's saying to Abram, I am up to something through you that is bigger than you. Will you trust me with the story or will you obsess over your own story? Friends, I've come to tell you today that some of you are disappointed in God because you've lowered your gaze. God, what's going on here? And God's like, no, no, look what I'm doing here. And you're like, no, no, God, I want to know this. And God's like, do you know that I was there in the beginning when I said, let there be light and galaxies and universes were spawned into being and I created things that could not even, it would blow your mind. I can see the end when Jesus Christ comes riding in on a stallion with his name tattooed on his thigh as a victorious king. I see the beginning, I see the end and I'm hearing your story and you think, that I am unable to do what needs to be done to accomplish the vastness of what eternity is going to require. Lift your gaze and know what I am master and Lord over is greater than what is happening in your moment. I'm calling you to see eternity. Friends, where is your faith and what is God calling you to look at? Is it just your moment or is it his story? This is what Abram does, and in this moment, Abram sees God flex. He has a go at counting the stars, feels stupid, and in the next moment, the Bible tells us, Abram believed the Lord, and God credited it to him as righteousness. Now, this is a whole sermon in and of itself. It's, it's this whole moment we can go and we can talk about Paul and Romans and Galatians about how we are justified by faith alone through grace alone. It's a beautiful moment. But I'm going to leave that for another time. Other than this, what happens in this moment is that Abram goes, I'm no longer have passive faith and active control. I'm going to have passive control and place active trust in God. Walter Brueggemann says it like this, that Abram has now permitted God to not be a hypothesis about the future but the voice around which his life is organized. What does this mean? God's no longer a multiple choice. Well, there's God, and then there's me, and then there's this religion, and I'll just see which one pans out. God's no longer, hey, I hope this works when I land on the net 
No, he's saying, it's only God now. I surrender control. Friends, is God just a hypothesis for your future? Or the very voice around which you rotate the very life which you live? That is the adventure of faith. It's the adventure of trust. You're called beyond passive belief and into active trust tonight. And maybe you're like me, you get to this point in the story and you're like, well, this is lovely. But there's a question that niggles at me, then maybe it niggles at you. Still, God hasn't done much for Abram. How do we know God can be trusted? At this point, it's just filled with promise and not much action. It's like that moment you say, hey, I'll take out the rubbish, and the rubbish is still in the bin. It's like, how do I know you're actually going to do it? It's the same question we ask of God, and we should ask that of God in this moment. So God, you've, you've promised Abram a lot. How do we know he can trust you? Because here's the question that I think is dominating people's minds and worlds today. How do I know I can trust God? How do I know I can trust God with my future? How do you know you can trust God with your relationship decisions, with your finances, with your life? Not just with part control, but with full control. How do you know? And this is where the story leads us now. God turns to Abram and he says another promise. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur in the next verse of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, sovereign Lord, how can I know I will gain possession of it? Can you hear what happens here with Abram? God goes, not only am I going to give you a flesh and blood son, but I'm still going to give you the very land that you're walking on right now. So God, as if Abram wasn't already filled up with promises that he hadn't yet received, God's like, hey, remember, I'm also giving you the land. And Abram in this moment, he doesn't say why, he doesn't say when, but he comes along and he asks a really important question. How do I know you're going to do this? How do I know? I mean, I saw the stars, like, wow, but how do I know your character can be trusted? It's a good question. And so God gives him an answer. God gives him an answer which for Abram seems to settle something in his mind. The answer is simply this in the next verse. God says to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a pigeon. <laughs> Makes so much sense. <laughs> Fantastic. That solved a lot of stuff for me. I feel like I could trust God right now. Why? Oh, just bring me a heifer and a lamb and a goat and a couple of pigeons. Cheers, God. Clearly, this is a weird episode of Dr. Harry's Practice. Shout out if you remember that from when you were young. Well, this is a really, really young audience. But I love that show when I was little. What's going on here? What the heck? Abraham's like, God, how can I trust you? And God's like, bring me a heifer. And he's, but here's the weird thing. Abram, at every other point of this story, has turned around to God and said, why, how, when? Hey, wait a second, I've got a question. God turns around and goes to Abram, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, and each three years old, along with a dove and young pigeons. And what does Abram do? Does he go, I've got some questions. Now Abram goes, yeah, makes sense. And he comes along and he goes, Abram goes and brings them all to him. This is the weirdest part of the flipping story. Every other moment I'm like, makes sense, makes sense. And then suddenly Abram's like starting a zoo and you're like, this doesn't make sense. And it shouldn't make sense. Because what we're looking at here is something that Abram understood because it's something he'd done before. But it's something that is going to be bizarre for us. And just quickly, I know we've got some vegans and some vegetarians in the room. I want to let you know this doesn't turn into a cuddle session with these animals. This gets a little bit grotesque. So just preparing you, we're reading into a culture that's thousands of years older than we are. 
But this is not a practice that God is encouraging us to now continually maintain. Just highlight that as we step into this moment. What is happening is that God is preparing Abram to do a ritual of covenant or a promise. And Abram knew this because this was a consistent practice in his day. What is a covenant? A covenant's different than a contract. You have a contract with Optus. You pay Optus some money, they give you some goods. A covenant isn't about goods received, it's about trust given and promises held. A covenant is when two parties come together and they covenant together to say, I will do this no matter what, and this is how you can trust me. You might have a covenant around land rights. There were covenants around marriage. So often what would happen is that it was a covenant formed between the father of a bride and the groom, where the father of the bride says, I give you my daughter holy and purely just to you, and I form a covenant with you, and this groom would say, I take your daughter to encourage her, to cherish her, to love her, to guide her, to provide for her, this is thousands of years ago, and, and, and I form a covenant with you. Now, how did they know that the father of the bride and the groom could be trusted? Well, this is the part that's a little grotesque. What happens next is that Abram cuts the animals in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut. Now, Ultimately, what we're picturing here kind of seems like a horror scene. But what happens is that Abram cuts the animals in two and lines them opposite each other, creating a path. And the blood from the animals drained down. Now, back in those days, this was a common practice because blood was seen as significant and the source of life, a symbol of life, and deeply important and symbolic in covenant ritual. And what would happen if I go back to the marriage ritual is that the, father, the, the groom would come, they would make the sacrifice, and then the groom would walk in between the animals, making sure the blood splattered onto his clothes. And what he was saying was this, I promise to take care of your daughter, I promise to provide for her, to only love her and only her, and if I do not keep this covenant, you can do to me as we have done to these animals. And the father of the bride turns around and he too walks. He says, I give my daughter to you and only you. I promise you that she's been kept for you, that this is a beautiful thing. I, you know, and, and he gives blessing to this. And he's saying, if I am not telling you the truth, then you can do to me what we've been done to these animals. Now, the idea is not that that action is carried forth. The idea is, is that the weight of the covenant rests on the parties, that this is serious, that this isn't a light thing. It's not like a pinky promise. I've just taught my son, Archer, to make pinky promises, and he loves it. This isn't a pinky promise. This is actually saying, if we break this, it's going to get serious. And so when God says to Abram, go get a heifer, go get a lamb, go get some goats and some doves, Abram goes, oh, I know exactly what this is. See, Abram's asking God, hey, do you have skin in the game? Can I trust your character? And by asking Abram to go get these animals, God turns to Abram and goes, can I trust yours? How do we know that? Because the next part of the story says, then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. What, what does that mean? Now, I don't know if you've seen documentaries, but when do birds of prey come down and feast on carcasses? Is it straight away? It's usually after a period of time. So we have this image where Abram's prepared the sacrifice, but he doesn't walk the covenant. He sits. Why? Because he realizes he's challenged the character of God. How can I know that you'll keep your promise, God? And God turns around and goes, well, how do I know that you'll keep yours? Why don't we form a covenant? And if I break my word, you can do to me as we do to the animals. And if you break your word, we can do to you as we do to these animals. Abram realizes, 
as we all realize, friends, that he is not the great promise keeper, he is the great promise breaker. That if he walks that covenant walk, he's making a commitment that his life cannot check. He cannot, he's cashing, uh, cashing a check, his bank cannot, anyway, I don't know what the saying is, but he's doing something that he knows he will fail. He knows he will fall short. So if he walks this blood covenant, if he says, do to me as we've done to these animals, he's like, I know that I'm not gonna live up to the standard. Why? Because Abram knows himself. He's like you and I. He fails consistently. He's not always trustworthy. He doesn't always, and so he sits behind side these carcasses going, I don't know what's gonna happen, but I can't make this covenant with God. I'm too scared of what's gonna happen with me. And the question we have to ask is, how does God respond to Abram's fear of being held accountable for a covenant he can't make? Does God go, well, looks like you're not gonna be the father of nations and you don't get the land anymore. Sorry, Abram, next. No, not at all. We skip to verse 17 where we see how God responds to Abram's, Abram's trepidation. It says this, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. And as I say this, if, if the band, if Luke wants to come, that'd be beautiful. What's happening in this moment? How many parties are needed for a covenant too? But God knows that Abram can't make the covenant because he's afraid and he won't be able to keep it. So what does God do? The Spirit of God takes on the form of both a smoking fire pot and a blazing torch, and he walks the covenant path on behalf of himself and on behalf of Abram. He doesn't force Abram to make the promise. Why? Why is this so beautiful? Why is this so important? Because in this moment, friends, we see the character of God. In this moment, we see the character of God. See, you've got to remember, Abram didn't have Sunday school. He didn't have the Bible. He didn't have Alex giving us five-syllable words every Sunday so we can understand what God's character is like. That's not what Abram had. The only way that Abram could know God is by God's promises and God's follow-through of those promises. The way you can know the character of God, friends, if you want to know what it's like, know his promises because his promises match his character. And so God says, you want to know how my character can be trusted. I'm not just going to hold you accountable. I'm going to hold myself accountable on your behalf. I will be making the promise, not just on my behalf, but on your behalf as well, Abram. And so God walks the covenant path, what's known as the blood path, on his own behalf and on Abram's behalf. What does this mean? It means this, that he knows Abram will fail, but he won't hold Abram accountable for the broken covenant. He knows that Abram will fall short, but he won't hold Abram accountable. Why? Because Abram does fail. The very next story, he takes back control. But not just Abram, Moses. Not just Moses, Joshua. David, all the kings and the people of Israel. New Life Brisbane fails God all the time, amen? Alex was the only one there, which is concerning. And what does this mean? It means, friends, that we can't be trusted, so how does God respond? God takes covenant so seriously, so seriously, but He steps in place of you. Because if the covenant's been broken, then the covenant must be paid for. So what does God do? What does God do when we've broken the covenant? He follows through on what's said. Treat me as you would treat these animals. He takes on the form of man. He comes to earth as someone we know as Jesus, whose body is torn, whose blood is spilt. He was pierced for our transgressions. He suffered in our place. What's happening in Genesis chapter 15 is this. God's saying, one day, what I should require of you, I will require of myself. I will take your place. 
and I will step in. And here's the reason. You might be sitting here today going, how can I trust God? God looks at you and says, when you break the covenant, this is how I respond. I climbed a cross. I died a death that my blood would be spilt so it would cover you. Not so you would be dirty, but that you might become clean again. Friends, if you want to know how you can trust God, the question is not, is God providing me with finances or with a boyfriend or girlfriend? We look to the cross. Because on the cross of Jesus Christ, we see a God's character who steps into our place when we are the great covenant breakers and God is the great covenant keeper. This is how we know, friends. And I know there are people here this afternoon who are going, how can I trust God? I'd ask you, what else do you want God to do? What else would you want? He sent his son, his son, so that whosoever shall believe in him shall not die but have everlasting life. Why? Because he knew we would fail, but he chose to pursue us anyway. This is the beauty of the story of Abram. This is the beauty of what God is doing through Genesis. He always has Calvary in mind, always. And he always has you in mind. So I want to ask you a question, friends. Who do you trust with your story? What other God would die a death like this? What other God would make a promise like this, knowing that he would have to pay the price for us? What other God but a good one, but a faithful one? What other God but Jesus Christ? Who is your active trust in today? Who is your active trust in today? And is it time to place it in Jesus? Would you stand with me and bow your heads? Just as we're in this moment and just waiting upon God, I just sense, you know, that there probably are people in this room who carry disappointment, hurt, anger. And what I know is that so often in my life, I am disappointed in God because I hold him responsible for promises he never made or promises I've misunderstood. But every promise that God has made in the Bible he has fulfilled or will fulfill. There is not one thing God has said that he has broken, that he has failed, or that he has not done. And today I just sense God saying, will you trust me again? Will you look at my son, Jesus? Will you look at God made flesh and realize that I bear the cross and the pain and the price? I just wonder today, if that's you, if there's disappointment you're carrying in God, but you're sensing God calling you back to active trust in Him again, to take a step of faith, to jump out of a plane knowing the net will catch you. I just wonder, if that's you, would you just open your hands in front of you right now? If God, you felt Him silent, would you open your hands in front of you right now? If God has disappointed you, would you open your hands in front of you right now? Lord Jesus, in this moment, we 
we pause. In Hebrews 12, you say, Father, that we should fix our gaze on Jesus, considering him who endured sin and the shame of the cross. Lord, we, we look to Christ right now as our way of knowing you can be trusted, you will fulfill, you will do what you have said. We cry out, as the man did in the Gospels, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Help the moments where I struggle, where I fall short. Thank you, Jesus. There are some of you here today who you have not had active trust in God, just with your heads bowed and eyes closed, but you're someone who would say you've trusted in things of the world, but not the things of God. And there is something stirring in you right now as you hear the story of a God who makes a way, who steps in on your behalf. And I wonder if that's you today. If you would love to place your active trust in God, maybe for the first time or maybe for the hundredth time. If that's you and you want to respond to God's call, I just wonder, would you raise your hand wherever you are? I'll wait for you. Thank you so much for your courage. That's awesome. Thank you so much for your courage. Thank you, Jesus. Lord Jesus, right now, my hand is raised with a whole bunch of people who are just saying, God, I want to place my active trust in you again. Lord, we repent of trusting in things that are other than you, things that are not you. We ask, would you lead us to follow you, to know you as someone that can be trusted? to not fulfill our agendas, but to be called into your agenda, into your better story. I pray for every person in this room today who's coming to know you, who has known you for a while. May we know your love, may we know your presence, may we know your goodness. In Jesus' name right now, fill our hearts with your hope and your love. We love you, we need you. We're just gonna wait in this moment. The band is just gonna come and lead us in a time of worship. And as we do, we're gonna sing statements and truths over each other and over ourselves and unto God that remind us of the faith that we're called to, the trust that we may have, and the promises that He has given. Let's worship God together.